Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And of course my co-host is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. G'day again, Alan. Hey, Darren. Well, to begin, we just want to take a moment to celebrate the podcast passing 50,000 downloads for the first 20 months that we've been in existence, which is fantastic and far exceeds our wildest expectations. So we're grateful to all of you for giving us some of your time every few weeks. But there's a lot to talk about, so let's get down to business. While COVID-19 will be dominating headlines for the foreseeable future, with so many countries currently in lockdown. Today, we are hoping to widen our lens a little beyond the coronavirus and tackle a topic we've been planning for a while now. Since we recorded our first episode on the Australia-China relationship, which was number 32, which arose out of Alan's piece in Australian Foreign Affairs, we've wanted to do something equivalent on Australia's other great and powerful friend, the United States. We agreed to wait until after the Democratic nomination seemed set, which does seem to be the case with Joe Biden taking what appears to be an insurmountable lead. And it's not just the Biden ascendancy, but we also, of course, have now COVID-19, the Trump administration's early failures and continuing challenges in addressing it. And so we have a lot of material to work with as we try to zoom out to think about the US and its role in the world, but also, of course, in the context of the alliance with Australia. So we'll start by focusing on the United States itself, both its flagging role as leader, but also the domestic sources of Washington's foreign policy. Then we'll turn to the alliance, viewed of course through an Australian lens. Now Alan, you've said to me that you wanted to lead off questioning today, so over to you. Yeah, well, thanks, Darren. I thought it was better for us to start with you today, because if you had to define a difference between you and me in the way we think about international relations, at least as it's come through in these uh, podcast discussions, it's probably that your initial angle of view begins from inside the country, from the domestic, and works outwards, while mine starts from events in the outside world and works its way back in. So eventually, of course, we both cover the whole span. But when we're thinking about the US, the inside is probably the best place to begin, especially at the moment. So, look, accepting that neither of us is a US specialist, I thought I'd invite you to talk us through how you see the link between what's happening in the United States at the moment as the coronavirus upends social and economic life and the way Americans think about the outside world. I wonder especially how you think this will play out in the presidential election campaign a bigger role for foreign policy as Americans contemplate their very different future or its marginalisation? Well, thanks, Alan. I think that's right that we have those sort of different starting points for our models of world politics. But of course, it's very dangerous to ask the academic to lead off because I could sit here for the next 45 minutes and give you a long lecture on, on US politics. But look, I'll try to follow your lead and be brief and I'll make three main points, I think. The first is that I don't think that the crisis will upend the tendency in American electoral politics to downplay foreign policy. It's just not something that the public tends to care about very much, except when it sort of crosses some major threshold like the Iraq War or like 9-11. 
Um, and that's sort of somewhat ironic because it's the one domain where presidents actually have the power to do stuff, being less constrained by Congress. So I think that to the extent that you would make a prediction, my prediction or expectation is that the coronavirus will mostly accentuate two trends within the presidential campaign that already exist. The first, it's been the focus on Trump and his administration's incompetence, divisiveness and corruption. And you see these playing out in the coronavirus response in terms of incompetence, his early downplaying of the threat, which has created easy attack ads for the Democrats. In terms of divisiveness, you're thinking about him playing off states against one another and and sort of playing favourites. And in terms of corruption, you've got any number of angles. And I've seen over the past 24 hours a news story about him sort of spruiking the, the benefits of a particular drug where there may be people in his close circle and even himself having some commercial benefit if it gets approved as a response for the virus. So I think the Democrats don't really need to change very much about what their argument is going to be. The coronavirus just puts it through a new perspective. For Trump, of course, it will strengthen his nationalist and xenophobic rhetoric. Chinese origins of the virus, the fact that foreigners are bringing the virus into the US, at least initially, and then more recently, shortages from supply chain vulnerabilities. All these can be leveraged into his narrative of a strong border, reduced immigration, and the need to return production and jobs back to American shores. So I don't think Either of these, either for the Democrats or for Trump, are necessarily arguments about foreign policy. The second point is that to the extent that foreign policy is shifting, it's clear that it's moving more and more towards being tougher on China. On the Republican side, you're seeing a lot of intellectual work being done to remake conservative politics, to reorient it or realign it with its new working class base of Trump voters. And I'm talking not just in terms of economic policy, but also foreign policy. And you see this work sort of using China as a mobilizing device, whether it's the theft of American jobs or American intellectual property, China's objectionable behavior at home or around the world. You see China very much being painted as the bad guy. And the coronavirus is only accelerating this trend, given the Chinese authorities' early failures to prevent the pandemic, as we've discussed continued doubt about their numbers and, of course, the uneven mask diplomacy. So I think then for the Democrats, they know they can't be outflanked by the GOP on China, and so they have their own obvious response, which is consistent with what I was saying above, that we're no less tough on China, but we're going to be much more competent. We're going to work with our allies. We're going to target our policy responses so they don't do needless damage to the economy and so forth. So again, I think the coronavirus is just playing into these existing trends. The final point, and as I've said before, I think both sides of US politics are beginning to reorient their domestic and foreign policies to account for the fact that the US public has grown much more sceptical and in many ways hostile to a model of US leadership which seeks to sort of realise a particular vision around the world and is willing to expend significant resources to get there. In the future, the emphasis is going to be on demonstrating the practical and tangible benefits of engaging with the outside world for the lived experience of ordinary Americans. For Trump, this means a transactional view of all relationships through a fundamentally nationalist lens. And on the Democratic side, I think it means that they will display leadership and strength abroad where it can be shown to make America stronger at home. Joe Biden has a recent article in Foreign Affairs, and it's actually titled A Foreign Policy for the Middle Class. Now, the one exception to this, I would say, is in supporting democracies. 
On the Democratic Party, all the major contenders did make democracy and the support for democracies around the world a major part of their campaign, linking it to their argument that democracy is broken in the United States, campaign finance and voting restrictions and so forth. So I think you will see in a democratic administration some emphasis on that. But I'll stop talking now, Alan, and get you to respond. Let's keep things focused inward for the moment. What have you learned from the presidential primary so far, and how do you think the coronavirus will shape the US election? I agree with all that you've said. I'd just add that the sort of presidential campaign we thought we might see back at the time of the Iowa caucuses and even through Super Tuesday has been you know, upended by all of this. Both sides are going to have to fundamentally change their campaign strategies, rallies and so on, and the issues they want to focus on. I sometimes wonder whether if this had all happened uh, earlier in the campaign, we might have seen it as an Elizabeth Warren Mm. Uh, moment. But look, I agree, foreign policy will play a marginal part in the decisions of the American voters, ironically, because those decisions will have an enormous impact on global foreign policy. Mm. It's probably worth adding too that Trump, Biden and Sanders are all in the vulnerable over 70s category. Mm. So that must have an impact on campaigning and what's the experience that Boris Johnson's going through at the moment must also weigh heavily on their minds. Yes, yes. The one thing I would add, I think, is to remember that a majority of Republican voters did not want Trump to get the nomination in 2016, but the GOP could not organise itself against him. While in the 2020 case, you've got just in a handful of days after the South Carolina primary, every basically every Democratic candidate other than Sanders dropping out and endorsing Biden. Well, Warren didn't, but you know, dropping out at a key moment. And so there had long been this sort of conventional wisdom that Democrats fall in love while Republicans fall in line. And it had been assumed that the Republican coalition of, of God, guns and money was much easier to organise than the big tent of the Democratic Party. Well, that certainly didn't play out this time. And for each party, its most important constituency decided the outcome. For the GOP, it was non-college educated white voters who went for Trump in 2016. And for the Democrats in 2020, it's been African-American voters who went for Biden. Anyway, let's zoom out, Alan, and can I ask for your assessment of the US role in the world right now? We've discussed this obviously a lot, incidentally, over recent episodes, but can we say that we're learning anything in particular from how the US is handling the coronavirus? As I've said before, I really can't remember a global event of this magnitude over the past 50 years in which the United States government has been so absent from a leadership position. Uh, You can think back to the Reagan administration, which was certainly culpable in its early response to the HIV AIDS disaster, but that was of a less global scale and certainly with less immediate Mm. economic impact than this. And in any case, we saw in another Republican president, George W. Bush, more than making up for it with his $80 billion president's emergency plan for AIDS relief called PEPFAR, which was focused on Africa. But instead of trying to shape an effective international response, the US has effectively self-isolated. You know, when the G7 foreign ministers met, it uh, prevented the issuing of a joint statement when Secretary of State Pompeo demanded that it be officially referred to as the Wuhan virus. And Mm. to be frank, I mean, that's just batty diplomacy. So the Americans have been unable to get even their key allies behind them. 
I think it's a particular problem for this administration because the framework in which it views the world, which is, as we've been talking about, highly competitive, nationalist, America first, pretty zero sum, that sort of view is not good at accommodating transnational challenges like this. The language just isn't there to offer leadership. And in addition, I think you've seen in the chaotic handling of the crisis by the Trump administration, and I contrast that to some of the work done at the level of the states, I think that's done real damage to America's image as a competent, can-do problem solver. Mm, mm. And then bringing China in, Alan, do you agree with me that all the trend lines point towards a hardening of the US position towards China? And what do you see as the major consequences of this globally? I agree completely about the hardening position, although COVID-19 simply reinforces a trajectory Mm. which you and I have talked about before and was already in place. It adds new items to the American bill of attainder against China. You're already seeing that finger pointing begin. But look, I'm not willing to chance my arm on the global consequences yet because they're still so far to go the implications for America's and China's economy and social cohesion just seem impossible to track or predict at present. Mm. Let me ask one more specific question, Alan. The contributions of the Trump administration to the erosion of the rules-based order is obviously something we've covered a lot on this podcast. Uh, And listeners will remember your particular focus on the Universal Postal Union, Alan. Today, I wanted to ask sort of bring that into the theoretical realm in some sense and ask about the distinction between reputation and interests. There is a debate in international relations theory about whether reputation matters. Do nation states act towards each other based upon past behaviour, what they have learned from past behaviour, or do they ignore reputation and just do what's in their interests at any given point in time? And let me explain, and I've made this point before, that let's say that Trump loses and is replaced by a middle-of-the-road, internationally-minded Democrat, like Joe Biden, who immediately reaches out to allies, bolsters international institutions, and does smart things to crack down on some of China's more problematic behaviour, and not just China. I mean, you could add many other countries to that list. So I said in our last episode that I think that like-minded governments will embrace a renewal of US leadership. And this gets to this question of, well, how much does what came before matter? And so do you agree? I mean, would you expect that those countries in our region in particular who are increasingly fearful of China, but also worried about the long-term resolve of the US, would you expect them to get behind President Biden? Or is the US's reputation so permanently damaged and the world knows that even if Biden or someone like him is elected, another Trump could be just around the corner? Oh, yeah. I mean, reputation does matter. And there's no doubt in my mind that the view of the United States internationally has changed under Trump and probably permanently. For example, I'm really struck by the way senior Australian policymakers now talk about the United States in their private conversations. I don't mean that they've backed away from support for the alliance or belief in America's importance to Australia. But the sort of caveats and cautions you hear in their language are conspicuously different. And that reflects their experience of the Trump administration, which is, as you said already, been both erratic and incompetent. 
As we talked about before, there's another dimension of the reputational change which is unrelated to Trump himself, though, and that reflects the general shift in US power in the world. That unipolar moment after the Cold War when the US bestrode the world as the sole superpower, that's not coming back. And so that's also changed the way other countries think about the United States. Now, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, I don't actually think the distinction you draw between reputation and interests actually plays out quite like that. In Australia's case, our interests are overwhelmingly best served by a United States that lives up to its reputation and embodies a particular sort of global leadership. I agree with you that there's a great desire in our region to see America revert to a more familiar pattern of engagement after November and that if this happens, it will quickly go along to restoring some of the recent reputational damage at least. Okay, well, let's move into the second half of the podcast where we'll focus on Australia's relationship with the United States and, of course, the alliance in particular. And let's start with some context Now, every listener knows that the US has been the most important external actor in Australian foreign policy since World War II. Now, just in case our listeners didn't realise this, a few years ago, Alan, you published a book called Fear of Abandonment, Australia in the World Since 1942. And now that we're in our 44th episode, and having tallied an incredible 50,000 downloads of this podcast... It's time for me to confess that part of my cunning plan to persuade you to join me in creating a podcast was to call it Australia in the World, the subtitle of your book. Aha, I should have cottoned on, yeah. (laughs) Having successfully entrapped you, Alan, yet perennially fearing abandonment myself, maybe it's time to allow you to plug your book more fully. Can you briefly introduce the bilateral relationship for us? and sort of talk about how, historically at least, it has shaped the mindsets of Australian policymakers like yourself. Well, thanks, Darren. Fear of Abandonment, Australia and the World Since 1942, Latrobe University Press, Essential Reading. (laughs) Moving on. Despite the sentimentality of the 100 years of mateship stuff we go on with, Australia's relationship with the United States has varied over time. Even at the moment, we realised after the Second World War that Britain could no longer guarantee our security and we had to turn to the United States to do that. There was a lot of apprehension about the decision, even on the part of Prime Minister Menzies, or maybe especially on his part, given his deep loyalty to Britain. In the years afterwards, there were plenty of occasions where we disagreed with Washington on particular issues, almost always related to developments in our own region. You can see Australian policy moving through cycles of anxiety that the Americans would leave the region. And we saw this after the Second World War, after Vietnam, after the Cold War, for example, alternating with worry that they would stay and ask too much of us. For the generation of Australians before me, America's role in the victory during the Second World War and the Battle of the Coral Sea was deeply embedded. It couldn't be forgotten. And that generated what I think is possibly a unique attribute in Australia's alliance with the United States, and that is that both sides of politics claim ownership of it. If you hear any coalition minister going to Washington, they'll talk about 
Percy Spender and the ANZUS Treaty, mm. every Labor minister going there will talk about John Curtin and the turn to America during the Second World War. And this competition over the origin story has been hugely important in cementing bipartisan support for the alliance. Despite that, though, no Australian who's lived in the US or even visited for an extended period fails to realise that there are deep differences in the way we look at the world. It's always sort of seemed to me that America is an idea, Australia is a place. They're romantic, we are sardonic. <laughs> there are reasons for that. The early European settlers in North America set out from the East Coast and found the Great Lakes and the Great Plains, whereas the early European settlers in Australia found the Great Sandy Desert. <laughs> Americans want government out of their lives. We just want it to be more effective. Australian politicians talk the language of mateship when they want to connect with voters. Their American counterparts speak about individual liberty. But you began by asking how the relationship shaped the mindset of my generation, and that was forged really at the earliest point by the Cold War and Vietnam. We were more conscious, I think, of America's changeability but for most of us, there was a sense that if you're going to have a global superpower, then the United States is better than most. Uh, liberal in its foundational philosophy, interminably arguing with itself, sometimes failing, but usually trying to live up to its own best aims. Mm. Well, thanks for that introduction, Alan. What I've been wondering is whether the alliance still matters as an quote-unquote alliance, or should we just talk about a close bilateral relationship? After all, the text of the 1951 ANZUS Treaty does not arguably commit either side in any concrete sense to defend the other if attacked. To remind our listeners, Article 3 says that the parties will consult together whenever, in the opinion of any of them, the territorial integrity, political independence or security of the parties is threatened in the Pacific. And Article 4 says each party recognises that an armed attack in the Pacific area on any one of them will be dangerous to its own peace and security and declares they'll act to meet the common danger. So there's no concrete promise to come and defend with military force in there. So, Alan, if I replace the word alliance with the word relationship in discussions about ties between the two countries, would that change much? Asked another way, if we could do everything we do anyway because we have shared interests, shared culture, shared values, does the formality of the alliance treaty make the relationship something more than the sum of its parts? We use the two words relationship and alliance interchangeably, but as you point out, there's a difference. The relationship spans the broad spectrum of all our connections, cultural, economic, social, and the alliance is particular to the field of security and defence. As formal alliances go, you, you said it, uh, ANZUS is not very remarkable. For example, that language you quoted about joint consultation in the event of threats is quite similar to that in Australia's 1987 Joint Declaration of Principles with Papua New Guinea. Mm. So mm. what matters more than the words is the underlying commitment the treaty represents on both sides and the trust that that reflects and then in turn generates and all reinforced by just countless continuous interactions across government. Far more important for Australia than the rather weak commitment to mutual assistance in the event of attack is the framework and cover which the treaty gives us. 
for exchanges on intelligence and access to high levels of defence technology. And one thing that I've always regarded as really important and is often overlooked is that the alliance relationship gives us access and standing in Washington to make our case at the highest levels when we need to, that we simply wouldn't have if we were one of the also-ran middle powers Mm. of the world jostling for attention in Washington. But give us your theorist's take on the value of a formal treaty, Darren? Mm, Well, there is a debate, unsurprisingly, on whether international agreements generally are just scraps of paper that don't do anything meaningful to affect states' behaviour. And these debates range across a variety of contexts, from peace treaties that are designed to prevent further conflict to complex conventions designed to bind governments in a policy domain, such as trade or finance or human rights. And now, it's still true, I think, that most countries abide by most international law and treaties most of the time. The question is, do governments comply with them because the treaties compel them to do so, or because it's in their interests anyway? So in the present context, would the alliance compel either the United States or Australia to do things that we really wouldn't want to do if some security contingency arose? Now, in one sense, it's impossible to answer that since we're talking hypotheticals. Right now, I think that the areas of shared interest between the two countries are far greater than the disagreements. So we could expect in most circumstances both sides to act as if they were contractually bound to do so because it's going to be in their interests anyway. So this means, of course, that it's the shared interests rather than the formal treaty obligation that gives Canberra and Washington and, for that matter, would-be adversaries the expectation that the two governments would act to help the other out. Moreover, all the things we do together, as you said, Alan, reinforce these shared interests, you know, building networks of trust between the two governments and the two militaries. But while cooperation under the auspices of the alliance can help align interests and further build shared interests, there still will be limits if, into the future, the two countries found ourselves more and more at odds with more and more conflicting interests, then you would have to think it's less likely that the alliance, quote-unquote, would have the meaning it does today in a crisis scenario. Let me make one last point. I think of the alliance now as almost a baseline, reflecting the path dependencies created by history and essentially is stable because of the depth of the shared interests between us. The fact that it exists doesn't maybe have as much independent impact because of the overlapping interests I described. But what would be significant is if one or both sides decided formally to pull out. So my answer is it doesn't maybe mean as much as a formal treaty because it just reflects existing interests, but it would mean a lot if it were to go away. Do you have any reaction to that theoretical logic, Alan? Oh, look, it's always so good to find areas where practice and theory coalesce uh, uh, <laughs> so nicely, Darren. That all sounds right to me, especially because the ANZUS alliance, unlike NATO, doesn't compel the parties to do anything at all. Treaties, as someone said, last while they last. Mm. Well, let's talk about the domestic politics of the alliance inside Australia. Only 52% of respondents to the 2019 Lowy poll said that they trusted the US to do the right thing in the world, down from a high point of 83% during the first Obama term. In the 18 to 29 age bracket, that number was 28%, lower than the 36% of that age group saying they trusted China. 
but with both numbers declining sharply in recent years. Now, a strong majority of respondents overall said the alliance was very or somewhat important to Australia's security, including in that young age bracket. Therefore, while we seem to trust the US less, we seem to agree that we still need them. So, Alan, you've obviously had a long history with the Lowy poll. Do you think these numbers offer sufficient political ballast for the medium-term stability of the relationship? Yeah, look, from the beginning of the Lowy poll, one of the interesting features has been the difference between Australians' attitude to the United States and its presidents and the importance we attach to ANZUS. Views of the trustworthiness of the US are volatile and, as you point out, were much higher under Obama and uh, Trump or Bush. But the question of the importance of the alliance to Australia's security sails along largely unaffected by that, with about 80% of respondents agreeing that it's important or very important. So the question for me is whether if we have another four years of the Trump administration, that issue of trust in the United States will begin to pull down the overall Mm. value attached to the alliance. Mm. Now, this won't exist on its own. There'll be other factors at play here. If China acts in ways that increase fear and suspicion, then the alliance might look more attractive to Australians. But to give a specific answer to your question, Darren, I don't think those numbers add up to medium-term stability. And I certainly fear that four more years of America firstism will shift overall thinking about the alliance, particularly in that younger age group. Hmm. Well, I guess you've got The question of how much we trust the US inherently and the damage that Trump has done to that. And then you've got the question of specific differences between the United States and Australia, differences in our interests, some of which exist, of course, even if Trump is not president. Graham Dobella of Aspie has said that, quote, the biggest threat to Australia's alliance with the United States has always been posed by the US and what it demands or fails to deliver, end quote. So, Can I ask over the medium term, Alan, what do you expect to be the areas of greatest friction and do you see them becoming severe enough or how could they become severe enough to cause permanent damage to the relationship? It's become conventional wisdom for Australian governments to say that the United States is going to expect its allies to do more for themselves. You read that in defence white papers going Mm. back a while now. The change we're seeing now is that the United States is expecting its allies to do more for the United States. (laughs) Yes. This has coincided with the general drift away from the idea, which was such a deep thread during the Cold War, that there were general Western interests which we all shared. And then earlier this century, the idea that we had shared interests with an even wider coalition of countries in the fight against terrorism and extremism. Increasingly now, as we discussed earlier, the central driver of the US conception of its identity in the world seems to be the competition with China. Mm. And that's, again, as we said, by no means a Trump or Republican phenomenon. So it's going to be difficult for Australia because whatever you think about the Chinese system or its ambitions, the range of Australian interests in China, and I'm not just talking about economic, but also our interests in the multilateral system, the nature of our engagement with other regional countries, they are simply going to be different from those of the United States. So we'll have to work harder than ever to determine where our own interests best lie and how we work with Washington as well as with Beijing. 
So how do you think about frictions? Yeah, we've disagreed in the past, Alan, about how ambitious Australia can be in its foreign policy, especially in this space. I have long believed that caught between two superpowers, there's only really a narrow range of behaviour within which we can operate on issues that affect the interests of the two titans. Moreover, I think of Australia as being fairly conservative and incrementalist in our foreign policy approach. While the US has both the power to undertake radical shifts in its policy settings and also the mercurial political system in which actors proposing such radical shifts can come to power. So for me, I think the most likely friction will come when Washington wants to change course dramatically from the status quo. Now, Trump has already done this on a number of issues vis-a-vis many partners, but just not Australia. So I think if something comes along where he wants to, or someone wants to come along and, and change a policy that directly affects us, that would be the source of friction. And I note that Charles Adele and, and John Lee made a similar point in a report on the Alliance for the United States Study Centre last year. So Alan, moving on, at any point in time, there are always proposals on the table to enhance the Alliance, you know, somehow to do more. And one that comes to mind to me was floated by Andrew Shearer a few years ago. And of course, Shearer now occupies a very senior role inside the Australian government. And he co-authored a piece with Mike Green of the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, a DC think tank. And the two proposed a rotating presence for the US Navy at HMAS Stirling in Western Australia, and potentially even nuclear support infrastructure for basing attack submarines there. Now, Alan, I'm not asking you to comment on that proposal directly, but I'm wondering whether you think Australian policymakers and and thinkers should continuously be exploring ways to do more in the relationship, whether that's in military or other domains. Do we need that consistently forward-looking momentum to keep the alliance stable? Well, I'm in favour of consistently forward-looking momentum. I think that's always necessary, but that's not always the same thing as doing more. Mm. It depends what the more is and whether it's in our mutual interests at a given point with the United States. There have been long periods in the history of the alliance. I can think about most of the 1990s, for example, when remarkably little happened, (laughs) but it proceeded quite happily and productively without the need for constant reinvention. So I don't think it has to keep going ever onwards and upwards and faster and higher and so on to remain valuable to both countries. I like that phrase, Alan, remarkably little happened, because of course that brings me to China. And if we're correct that there is this bipartisan hardening of opinion in the foreign policy establishment regarding China as a strategic rival in Washington, I mean, then the gap between what Beijing wants from us here in Australia and what Washington wants from us is going to widen. So Alan, this is normally where I would ask some version of the question, do we have to choose? A question that, of course, Australians have been asking for at least two decades now. But let me try to ask this question in an updated way. Going back to your piece in Australian Foreign Affairs on the Australia-China relationship last year, you wrote the following. Luckily, we have another way of approaching China. That is through the often disregarded, disdained in some quarters, work of foreign policy. Foreign policy is not diplomacy. That's the operating system underpinning it. 
and it is not the responsibility of a single government department. It is the daily business of engagement, negotiation, action and reaction across the span of government activities, bilateral and multilateral, by which our government advances our interests with China and protects our values. So my question, Alan, do exactly the same principles apply in how we manage the alliance relationship or are there differences either in the overarching principles or in how they're executed? Oh, look, easy to answer. Um, Foreign policy is the part of statecraft that deals with the management of relations between states. We have differences even with the closest of friends. You and I were talking about New Zealand Mm. uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It doesn't matter whether the other state is a competitor or an ally. Foreign policy gives us the tools and processes, um, bilateral and multilateral diplomacy, for weighing up our interests and negotiating our future. Going back to what we were talking about before, foreign policy is what links the US relationship and the alliance in a comprehensive whole. And foreign policy is the mechanism through which we manage the different sets of interests we have with both the United States and China. Without foreign policy, you've got empire. Do you agree? What's your take on this? While Trump has been a disaster for the rules-based order and, and has bungled multiple security challenges, whether it's North Korea to Iran and and now it seems to to COVID-19. I haven't seen much impact on the alliance. And that's probably because we are the least likely of any country to incur the wrath of the MAGA, make America great again types. There really isn't any domestic political benefit to bashing Australia. Our soft power, I think, whether it's Margot Robbie and Hugh Jackman or it's Ben Simmons or it's the Sydney Opera House, means that we are very much endeared to the American people. And I think our foreign policy strategy is sort of vaguely being polite and supportive towards Donald Trump himself, while otherwise keeping our heads down, seems to be working. And I don't see any alternative as it's the only way to preserve our diplomatic capital in the hope that we could persuade Trump from doing something truly insane if we ever needed to try. Now, if you wanted to force that thinking into a sort of a controversial conclusion, it would actually be that the foreign policy, as you portrayed, Alan, might not be the most important factor in determining the overall quality of the relationship. Rather, it's our soft power that keeps us endeared, that keeps that affection within the median American voter and the politicians that they vote into office. And as long as we are looked at with affection, we are as well positioned as any country to get help when we need it. We'll come back to that at a future point. (laughs) Well, let me ask my last question. And I want to bring in a Hugh White's recent book, How to Defend Australia Here. And you recommended this on the podcast last year. One premise of his book is that Australia's military planning, the types of forces, how they're arranged and so forth, is a function of our assessment of what role the US is going to play in Asia over the next 25 years. White, of course, argues that the US will have neither the capability nor the motivation to do so. So, Alan, first question, how much do you agree with Hugh that Australia's defence and foreign policy are based upon the assumption of continued US primacy? In other words, is he right that at the heart of our future planning must be an assessment of the US's likely capability and motivation. 
That's absolutely right for him to say that Australian defence and foreign policy are based on the assumption of continued US primacy and that an assessment of American capability and motivation has to be at the heart of our future planning. Mm. Absolutely. So in that case, Alan, faced with policy choices that will span decades in their impact, and I'm thinking, of course, submarines that take a long time to build and so forth, how much does the upcoming presidential election matter to our future planning? Or do we know enough now to make a call on Hughes' argument? Or would we need to wait even longer than the upcoming election in November to start to make these assessments? Yeah, I'll go back to what I said right at the beginning. We simply don't know enough now and probably won't know enough until well into 2022 to be able to plan. The coronavirus is just upending all plans and all uh, assessments and uh, all assumptions. But I reckon it's pretty damn clear that once Australian officials have a chance to lift their heads beyond the immediate crisis, they'd be sensible to start doing some hard thinking about defence and foreign policy white papers in 12 to 18 months' time. What do you think, uh, Darren? What's your answer to your own question? Do we know enough to make an assessment? Well, firstly, I'm very excited about doing a, a white paper episode, Alan. Maybe we can do our own mock white paper in advance the way that sports websites do mock drafts before drafting time. Look, I agree with a lot of Hugh's argument, but I don't think you need to accept the premise that the US will inevitably decline to undertake at least some of the reorientation or the, the radical reorientation that he is proposing. You know, White himself accepts that the US will remain a very important player and that Canberra will want to remain good friends with Washington, with the United States, even if there is no formal alliance that connected us. So what I would like to know is the extent to which Australia could persuade the United States to reorient its own strategy more towards a denial rather than a control strategy, which is where he's getting into the weeds of defence strategy in his book, which would thereby help facilitate for Australia the four structure changes that he is suggesting we do anyway. Because I certainly don't expect the Australian public is going to accept a 3 to 4% GDP spend on defence, which is one of the planks of his argument. And so we would need to find a cost-effective way of defending Australia that would be to build up the kind of independent capability that Hugh was talking about, but probably not with nuclear weapons, but more importantly, in partnership with the United States under the umbrella of some kind of alliance relationship. And this is true, I think, regardless of what happens in November. That would both help us achieve our strategic objectives at lower cost, while trying to cement the ties to maximise the likelihood that the US would come to our aid if we asked. Anyway, that's my answer. So let's wrap up the podcast down with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What have you got for us this week? Uh, we've come back several times today to that central question about America and China. So I wanted to recommend an interview Ezra Klein had a week or so ago on his podcast with the uh, fine New Yorker journalist Evan Osnos. It's a really excellent short account, if you're looking for one, of how and why China-US relations have sunk to what Osnos uh, describes as their worst point since Mao. But then as a companion piece, I also wanted to point to an article by another New Yorker journalist, Peter Hessler. Hessler was a young Peace Corps volunteer teacher in Fuling on the Yangtze River in 1990s. 
In 2001, he published Rivertown. I don't know if you read it, Darren, but it's no. a really funny account of his experiences there as China was opening up to the world and the sort of mutual cultural discovery taking place. In this article, though, that I'm referring to from The New Yorker, he's reflecting on the meaning and consequences of the Trump administration's decision to pull the tiny US Peace Corps program, which he notes costs less than the State Department spends annually on membership of the International Pacific Halibut Commission. <laughs> the decision to pull that out of China. So it's sad and a bit nostalgic. Mm. Anyway, both those worth looking at. Okay, thanks, Alan. Well, I felt a bit guilty last episode of recommending Twitter to our listeners to dive even deeper into the news while you're recommending a book, the final uh, in the Hillary Mantel series on Cromwell. My recommendation then this week is a newsletter, but which has nothing to do with politics. I only subscribe to three newsletters in total, Two of them are about China, um, one from Bill Bishop and, and the other one is the China NACAN newsletter. But the third one is about music and it's called Flow State. So if you Google that, Flow State, and it's a newsletter that comes, it's free, um, although you can also subscribe, it comes with a daily recommendation for music that is good to work to or to read to. So good background music. And they link it to Spotify and to other platforms where you can access music. And it just is a nice way of discovering things that you don't need to pay direct attention to, but you can put on in the background and do whatever it is you're doing anyway, but be exposed to something new and interesting, or in some cases old and interesting. Flow State is the name of the newsletter. All right, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank... New AIIA intern Maddie Gordon for her help with research and audio editing, XC Chong for research support, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks and talk to you again soon. <laughs>